Hello and welcome to a brand new season of the British Food History Podcast. My name is Dr. Neil Buttery. I've got some great conversations and topics lined up for you in this batch. I hope you're all good. It's been rather a scorcher here in the UK over the last couple of weeks. It's cooler a little bit today, thank goodness. Now, I've got a few things to tell you about, but I'll save the bulk of things until the end. I want to say a really big thank you to everyone who's bought a copy of my book, Before Mrs. Beaton. Elizabeth Raffold, England's most influential housekeeper. It seems to have done very well. Thanks too to anyone who came to see any of my talks. There's going to be another couple of talks in September. Dates to be announced, so I'll tell you about those when I have a bit more information. I have put up the Zoom talk on my YouTube channel, if you are interested. Link to that, as well as an article I wrote about our Elizabeth for the magazine Country Life, are in the show notes. My book is available from all good bookshops, as is my previous one, A Dark History of Sugar, both published by Pen and Sword History. A huge thank you to everyone for carry on listening to the podcast between seasons. A huge thank you to everyone for carry on listening to the podcast between seasons and to the new listeners who've discovered me in the time I've been away. Everyone is very welcome. Now, as usual, I'm intending to do a postbag edition at the end of the season. So if you've got any questions or if you've spotted any interesting food history in the news whilst I've been away, or you've got anything to share, including any comments or queries about this episode or any episode so far, please contact me. There are several ways. You can email me, neil at britishfoodhistory.com or you could send me a message or a DM on Twitter, at Neil Buttery, or Instagram, doctor, that's D-R, underscore Neil, underscore Buttery. I'll be posting about this episode, of course, on social media, so leave a message in the comments, or drop a post on my Facebook discussion page, which is at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash British Food History. There's a lot of thank yous. One final thank you. Thank you to everyone who's become a £3 monthly subscriber or has donated the equivalent of a virtual coffee or a virtual pint. It's really well appreciated. For those not in the know, the £3 subscription gets you my Easter eggs, hours of cut bits from previous episodes, mainly very interesting rabbit holes that I had to cut out for time. (laughs) But there's a whole bonus episode there from last season on the subject of jelly and flummery. And there's a bonus mini season all about forgotten foods. There's also premium blog content and a monthly newsletter so you can keep tabs on all the things that you're getting from being a subscriber. And you get to know about any special events first. But you don't have to do any of that because my last thank you goes to everybody who listens, shares, reviews and rates. All of those help the podcast get discovered by more and more people. And whatever you're doing, it's working. If you haven't left a review yet or a rating, please do so. Every single one counts. And that goes for my books. If you've bought either of my books, if you could please leave a rating or a review from the website you bought it from, I would be so, so happy. Right, enough about me, let's get the podcast episode started properly. Today I'm talking with Aaron Allen, who's a teaching fellow at the University of Edinburgh and an independent researcher in Scottish history. We are talking today about cake baxters in early modern Scotland. These people, usually women, were unfree, and we look at how they fit into society at this time. We also talk about the making and selling of baked goods and how they were highly controlled, and Kelsa 
not in their favour. We also discussed the ways oat cakes and wheat and bread were baked, beehive oven technology, horse bread and many other things. I'll be back at the end to let you know about the Easter eggs attached to this episode, as well as other news. But now, Cake Baxters in early modern Scotland with Aaron Allen. Aaron, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. I saw that you're doing some sterling work on uh, Cake Baxters, pastry women, and well, baking in general in in Scotland, before we get talking about the well, the nitty gritty of what you've been researching, let's do some scene setting. Whereabouts in the country are you looking and what time period are you focusing upon? I tend to focus mainly on Scotland, but I'm interested mm. in all of early modern history. So, of course, uh, that said, uh, most of the material that I tend to work on tends to uh, be centered on or near Edinburgh. But whenever I get the chance, I'm in any archives that I can get into. So I've I've done work in Kirkwall. I've done work in Dumfries. Whenever I get a chance to uh, to gather examples from further afield, I, I very much take that chance. I'm an early modernist, so I, I tend to focus on the period uh, roughly 1400 to 1800, give or take. Mm-hmm. But of course, as historians, we need to be generalists rather than specialists. So wherever the uh, wherever the research takes me. <laughs> well, indeed. Now, I listened to your great talk about women baking in the margins in, in Scotland. What was being baked at that time and, and what kind of cereals were being used? Because I've got a feeling that some people have got an idea of what bakers do. And it's likely to be fairly different to what was perhaps going on. It depends on the context. Mm. Now, in your towns, baking is a very different thing from what's happening in the countryside. Um, That said, a lot of countryside baking is being baked for an urban market. So, but maybe we'll come back to that uh, down the road. Much of what's being baked tends to be things like traditional wheat and bread, bread that we would recognize. Mm -hmm. Uh, That said, there are certain differences for example, uh, whole grain breads that we tend to think of as being artisanal and very, uh, very zeitgeist mm-hmm. uh, were fed to horses back in, the, okay. <laughs> back in the early modern period. Their ideal loaf was a very well-bolted white loaf. Sure. Clean to uh, modern sensibilities, but that is what their preference was. That said, that is only one form of bread which they were partaking in. And of course, there's a there's a class distinction. Not mm. everybody can afford such breads. Mm-hmm. The bolting process alone usually required a secondary structure. So they would have to build an actual building for the bolting process. Oh, the bolting really? House, yeah. Indeed. Um, so this, this adds quite a bit of expense to the loaf of bread, uh, both in terms of your labor costs, but also in terms of the, the overheads, the infrastructure needed. Therefore, this is very much the upper classes bread, the, okay. the, literally the upper crust. Was it mainly being imported then at, at this time from England? Uh, bread? Uh, wheat, rather. Oh, wheat. Mm. Uh, no, no. Um, Scotland, Scotland produced its own wheat. Um, there were wheat imports. Uh, the Baltic in particular was a, was a large exporter of, of cereals. Um, Scotland's main crop tended to be oats, and that was very much the staple of the Scottish diet. 
the mm -hmm. uh, the average Scot consumed more oats than they did wheat. That sure. said, wheat was grown in Scotland. Okay, I just always assumed it just didn't grow particularly well, so it wasn't really um, well, as we'd say now, economically viable. <laughs> well, no, you're you're absolutely right, but it depends on the part of the country. In certain parts of the Highland, you can find excellent arable ground. Oh. Um, in other parts of the Highlands, you cannot find arable ground. So it really depends on the context. For example, the, the area around, uh, around Edinburgh, the Lothians, uh, mm -hmm. East Lothian in particular, was very much the breadbasket of Scotland. Oh, okay. In fact, it's still today some of uh, the United Kingdom's best uh, agricultural land, apparently. Right, okay. Uh, so I've been reliably told. Well, we've got a misconception burst already there. <laughs> I suppose this is one of the interesting things, because what applies down here in the lowlands doesn't necessarily apply to other parts of Scotland. The situation in the islands, the situation in the highlands, mm -hmm. the situation in other parts of the lowlands or down in the borders will, of course, be very, very different. So your local context is going to have a lot to do with the local foodways, as you'll, as you'll know. Scotland's the land of cakes. as That's it's been. right. They're known for. So when we talk about cakes, we're not talking about sponge cakes and things like that, are we? Again, it depends. What we're oh. talking about here are hearth breads. So breads not baked in an oven, but instead baked over an open fire in the hearth. Mm -hmm. Now we do get sweet cakes, uh, seed cake, for example. One of my personal favourites, good seed cake, much underrated. But so we do know that they, they do have access to these. But of course, sugar, especially in the early part of the early modern period, is very much a luxury. So when we talk mm. about cakes, really, we're talking about savory and we're talking about oat cakes. Um, when Robert Burns gave that appellation, the, uh, the, the land of cakes, he was talking about oat cakes. Yeah. But of course, that's a much older term. It's not just something that Robert Burns invented. He inherited it from others. Uh, we can go back to uh, to Ferguson's poetry. We can go back to uh, 17th century Jesuits. We can even find John Knox himself uh, mocking the French for needing to learn to eat cake when they were in Scotland <laughs> and they were used to fancy French breads. I wanted to ask a little bit about the, the cake Baxters. Baxters just means bakers. Right? Am I, am I assuming that's correct? <laughs> yes, that's right. It's from the Old Scots. And interestingly, it was also used in Old English. So mm. um, its exact etymology, I cannot tell you. There's an interesting, uh, interesting field of, uh, interesting avenue of research for some linguists out there. The etymology of food words is so interesting. Sometimes they, they stoically stay, remain the same through the centuries, but the foods change. Sometimes there's no idea, it goes all over the place. It's, it's infinitely in interesting, that kind of thing. There was a big split, really, wasn't there, on who was able to bake what, and I suppose with what. So maybe we should start with the cake Baxters. Um, what were they typically baking on or in, and how were those things made? With the cake Baxters, the first thing to, to recognise is that they were almost exclusively on Freeman. That's an important dichotomy. In the early modern world, society is based on corporatism. That is the okay. way society is organized. Mm -hmm. And that's not something peculiar to Scotland. That is something which can be found in urban areas across Europe and even in parts, other parts of the globe. Mm. Now, basically, when we talk about corporatism, the distinction here is that you have the Freeman, who are the insiders, 
and you have the excluded majority, which are the unfreemen. Okay. Now this uh, this applies to uh, this applies to ecclesiastical organization. This applies to the family unit. We talk about the clans or the house of the house of Stuart, for example. Mm. There are insiders which are privileged, and there are outsiders which are excluded unless they are allowed in. So it's a hangover from feudalism, I suppose, isn't it? I mean, it's something that we just think of. This evaporated with the end of the medieval period, but it's, I guess it took a while for it to disappear completely. Indeed. Um, the 19th century really is when it, uh, it finally gets its death right. knell. Now, it, it depends on the area. Um, larger, larger markets such as London, they're able to effectively erode corporatism by the 17th century. In other places, it survives and is actually enforced all the way up to the 1800s. In Scotland, it is finally um, disbanded mm. by an act of parliament in 1846. Blimey. Which is actually fairly standard for Europe. Uh, where it's around that time period for places like Sweden, Holland, etc. So I interrupted your flow. Yeah, no, that's that's fine. So the, the thing with the uh, the cake baxters is that they are very much unfreemen. Now, we need to imagine the way that bread is baked, the way that the bread market is supplied is by the labor of freemen alone right now the freemen only have the right to bake bread <laughs> they have been tried they've given their essay in they've proven that they can bake a good loaf of bread not too heavy which means that uh, it's underweight full of water instead of wheat so they're cheating sure. the market instead expertly baked at just the right weight based on the pace or the weight of bread which is set by mm -hmm. the council now that of course is the ideal the reality is much more complex. They rely on the labor of their journeymen, of their apprentices, of their wives and daughters. You know, this is very much a family business setting, which isn't just a single free master in his bakehouse, but instead relies on many, many others. Now, this system, of course, is just for the baking of this expensive wheat and bread, which is really only for the elite in the towns. What everybody else is actually eating is something which is produced domestically. Mm. Hearth cakes. Oat cakes baked over an open fire. If they have a hearth, they're baked in the hearth. If they don't have a hearth, they're baking them in some other way, whether it's an open fire in the middle of the floor or at somebody else's house or what have you. But of course, this points to one of the potential areas here where people can make a profit from this. Yes. Because some people don't necessarily have access to even a hearth. So it's in people's interest to be able to sell these oat cakes so that other people who don't have access to the materials can actually get these. That causes all kinds of problems because suddenly we have competition for the incorporation of Baxters, that great corporate body. Sure. We can't be having that. No. No. <laughs> but of course, the reality is that competition is there. So that's a, that's a dynamic which needs to be managed and it needs to be managed carefully because there's a really interesting, uh, there's a really interesting tension here. Mm. We've got the privileges of this corporate body, but we've also got the needs of the great majority of excluded unfreemen. So the councils, the town councils, whether it's of Dundee or Inverness or what have you, they need to make some very careful political decisions about who has access to the bread market. Who yes. is actually going to be able to sell what, at what cost, and at what time. So the cake baxters are those who bake oat cakes and other things, to be fair, horse bread, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And they sell the surplus in the market. 
catering okay. largely for the poor. Is that something the poor can... I suppose they're buying the horse bread rather than the wheat and bread. <laughs> to a degree, um, it, it depends. I mean, horse bread was really seen as being for horses. But that said, some people would have would have eaten it in a, in dire straits. Yes, it's always mentioned, isn't it, the horse bread? If it's a, if there's been a couple of um, failures, harvest failures, they were they had to have the horse bread, which had peas meal and things sometimes mixed in. That's right. Yeah, very much frowned upon. Shame really. I almost made some peas bread, and it was all right. Oh, but yeah. I think if I ate it every day. I think I might not be saying that. <laughs> how, how did you get your peas meal? Did you did you make it yourself? No, there's a company in England called Hotmodods who make organic peas meal. And you can also get ground um, fava beans. So uh, I had a go. I, I, I did the proper one. It was very heavy. Obviously, there's no gluten in there, so nothing really rises particularly. All the little bubbles of carbon dioxide just pop. So I did a little bit of a cheat the second time round. And I popped maybe a third wheat flour in there. So it gave it a bit of structure. And it was pretty good. It was like, it was sweet and it tasted, the outside of it tasted like toasted, uh, like roasted peanuts. Because they're the same family, aren't they? Nothing wrong with a bit of experimental archaeology. Indeed, (laughs) indeed. I wanted to ask about the ovens because it's quite an expensive bit of kit, wasn't it? And it was had to be made in-house. It couldn't be transported around. It was required skill to get it lit, skill to get it built in the first place. Could you just tell me a little bit about those ovens they were using? Absolutely. Now, this, of course, is one of the really interesting things, that the cake baxters themselves didn't have access to ovens. Now, hmm. in Scotland, there's a 12th century set of borough laws called the Legis Burgorum. And one of the borough laws is that only a Burgess is actually allowed to have an oven. What's a Burgess? A Burgess is a freeman. They are a citizen. Again, this is a corporate context where we have the the privileged few, Mm. and they're the ones who have the the right to be on the town council, the right to elect the Lord Provost, um, the right to collect taxes and things like this. So you've got the very very few, privileged few. They also have uh, exceptions for market tolls, so whilst everybody else has to pay their weekly penny to be in the market, <laughs> a Burgess doesn't have to. Right. They also have the right to uh, to certain types of corporate work, such as baking. I understand. A baker, a freeman, a Baxter, because they're a freeman of the incorporation and they're if they're a Burgess, which they would need to be after 1583, they are allowed to own an oven. Now, ovens are very expensive bits of kit. They are architectural features. Mm. Now, we do see images from the medieval period of people who build clay ovens on carts and they can carry them around. And no doubt this could have happened. But most of the ones we know about which survive are built into walls. They're stone built. They are dome shaped. So they're quite often called beehive ovens. Oh, yeah. Now, this technology is something which was inherited from the Romans, and maybe it even goes further back, I don't know. But basically, if you imagine an igloo shape, we have a dome built out of stones, Mm -hmm. we have a small kind of uh, entryway, and inside of this, which is built into the wall, there'll be uh, certain flat stones for the sole or the, the base of the oven. Sometimes they would use old millstones, for example, because okay. they're pretty dressed and nice and flat. Mm. There's a wonderful example which survives at Hales Castle near Haddington. Basically, what we would do is we would build this oven out of stone. And of course, this would take a specialist form of mason. Not everybody could get this right. 
we know from a 19th century baking treatise written by a, a man in Dunbar who was a baker that you didn't just go to any stonemason when you needed your oven repaired. You went to the oven specialist. Right. So these are very expensive bits of kit. Not everybody has access to these. <laughs> now, if we want to actually fire one of these, what we have to do is the night before we're going to bake, we build an, a fire in the oven mm -hmm. as hot as we can. What we're using for this is brushwood because Scotland, very much like England, is poor in terms of wood. They don't yeah. have access to the wood that they would like to have access. Mm -hmm. to. So they make use of brushwood. Heather in particular was used in Edinburgh. And every now and then there's a fire in the town and they crack down on the Baxter's heather stock. So we know that they're using heather to fire their ovens. People would take this, they would cut it, they would uh, they would uh, tie it up into bundles called faggots. Mm -hmm. And these faggots were basically homemade logs. These logs were then put in and they would be fired the night before baking. As soon as the fire was actually started, what they would do is they would have the front of the oven uncovered. And right away, the smoke would start to pour out. It would go up to the top of the dome. Mm -hmm. The heat would push it, and it would go out the mouth of the oven. Oh, okay. <laughs> and it would it would naturally float up because heat rises. Sure. But at the same time, this is creating a vacuum behind it, which is drawing in colder air underneath, which feeds fresh oxygen into that dome-shaped oven, which ignites the fire, and it burns mm -hmm. very, very well, very hot. I always wondered about that. I assumed... Physics has never been my strong point anyway, but um, <laughs> just think, oh, you, you set a fire in there, there's a small aperture, sure, yep. that's, not, that's not conducive to getting a fire going, but that makes sense it's, now. It's all based on convection. So because, mm. because heat rises, it's pulling in air underneath and the smoke is pouring out above. So right. that sets your fire. There is some physics to this. Apparently, uh, Joss Townsend and Son, they're historical reenactors in the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, they've done some wonderful videos on 18th century cooking. Oh. And one of the things they've played around with is how to bake bread mm -hmm. in using pre-modern technology. And what they found was a ratio of two to three in terms of the height of the oven dome and the height of the entry. Oh, okay. So if you have the dome at three and the mouth of the oven at two, this creates the perfect flow of air to uh, apparently bring in the oxygen you need to set the fire. Excellent. Now, as that fire burns away, what it happens is it's reduced down to coals. And as soon as we've got that bed of coals, what the baker apparently does is he blocks up the mouth of the oven and he simply goes to sleep. The next morning he wakes up and all night those coals have been just smoldering away. All three types of heat transfer have happened. We have convection, where the air is moving around that stone oven. We have radiation, where heat is emanating out into the stonework. And of course, we have conduction, which means that that stone is soaking up the heat of those coals. So what happens the next morning is the baker unplugs the front of the oven. They take mm -hmm. out the stopgap, as, as everybody's, everybody's aware of, the, the word stopgap. Oh, okay. The mouth of the oven. <laughs> so uh, they take away the stopgap and they feed more fuel onto the fire. Once they have a roaring fire, what they do is they go away and they make up the dough. Now, as once the dough is ready, they go back to the fire and they rake everything out using a rake. Then they take a swab, which is just some rags on an end, the end of a stick mm -hmm. with some water, and they swab the inside of the oven, the sole, to clean it. 
They then throw the dough into the oven as quick as they can, and they stop it up again. And what happens now is the residual heat left in that stonework bakes the bread. Wow, because you've got to get a good heat on bread for it to come out successfully and get a good crust. I mean, that's the most important bit, as we know, of proper bread. So they're Indeed. packing in a lot of heat in there. This, of course, points to the skill of the baker being able to use this kind of infrastructure. The oven, when they first put the dough in, is too hot. So what you want to do is you want to bake something small, which is going to bake really quick. So mm -hmm. baps, things like this, smaller rolls, they would be put in first because they would bake much quicker. So you take your first bake out of the oven mm -hmm. using the, uh, the, the peel, which the peel. everybody's so familiar with. Yep. Looks like the pizza shovel. <laughs> yep. So they would use one of these <laughs> peels to reach into the oven to get the bake and they would pull it out. And now we've lost a bit of heat in the oven. So what happens next is the larger loaves of bread are put in, things which are going to bake more slowly. Sure. The oven is stopped up again, and they would go about other bits of their job. Once that bread is baked, they then take that out. And now we've lost a lot of heat. We have what the, the French would call um, petit fours, which are put in, meaning small ovens. Sure. So in other words, we've lost a lot of heat, so now we're putting in tiny, delicate things, which don't take a lot of heat. I suppose things with sugar in that might otherwise burn in the too hotter oven. Like possibly. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Some of these ovens are still in use in France today. They just never stopped using them. Well, you had these really expensive ovens, which were owned by Burgesses, selling them to the upper crust of society, or at least the middle classes and above. And there were these usually women making oat cakes. I mean, was it even more controlled as to what they could do? It just seems almost ridiculous that one yeah. saw the other as a threat because they're so different. Indeed. But that, of course, is that that is part of the problem. They were offering an alternative to bread in a context where most people couldn't actually afford bread. Most people would have just eaten oatmeal. That was the staple for the Scottish diet. Uh, we have wonderful, uh, wonderful accounts of university students traipsing off to St. Andrews or Glasgow or what have you with their bag of oatmeal. And when the we, we tend to go home when we need to do laundry, <laughs> well, they would have gone home when they when the oatmeal ran out to fill up a bushel or whatever. <laughs> Indeed, yes. So most people couldn't really afford bread. So suddenly we have this group of people which cotton on to the fact that they can make a profit from selling surplus oatcakes, this becomes a problem. Mm. Now, it's interesting, the arguments which are actually used against this, and there are two major ones. Uh, first of all, it's the economic competition. But this actually tends to be downplayed. The, mm. the big moral argument against profiteering from oatcakes is actually that it creates a dearth in the meal market. Okay. So if we think about it in terms of raw materials, mm. the grain, which it isn't actually a raw material, it's processed, it's turned into flour. Now, this can be used for household consumption. This can be used for corporate production of bread. These are the acceptable modes. Okay. We have this third group, which is trying to make commercial sales of oatmeal as oat cakes. That becomes a problem because mm -hmm. they're using up that supply, which the community needs. I see. But I mean, if they weren't making them, the community would be having to make them themselves. I don't know. It just seemed, it just seemed to me that it's just more about control than it is about profit or yeah. food. It, it's certainly not the way we would look at the economy. But of course, you know, we're, we are heavily influenced by uh, modern economics. 
we tend to see the utility in this. We, we tend to think of ourselves as, as having a free market. And of course it isn't free, but no. um, we lean towards that. Now, the idea of a free market to them was anathema. They simply wouldn't have, wouldn't have countenanced it mm. because that is where you run into the problems of Darth. If someone's not putting in stops, then the market's going to just run riot and they aren't going to have the necessities they need. So the common wheel is the guiding force. What yeah. is best for the whole community? Was there an acceptable form of it going on? For example, I mean, making yes. it, I'm assuming for your neighbors would be okay. For, you know, was it, was it just at some point, did it, was it one step too far? Well, this, this is the interesting thing about it because the, the views we get into the situation tend to be when something has gone wrong. So okay. when there is Darth, and uh, what we're talking about here in the 1500s is extreme. So right now we're going through a period of, of extreme inflation. And this mm. is causing all kinds of social chaos. Uh, it's, it's very unpleasant. Now, this is a wonderful window into what it was like in the 1500s. Because there we also have the population is finally starting to reach an equilibrium after the, the Black Death of the 1300s. So the population recovery, we have more mouths to feed. Mm -hmm. There's also climatic change. There's the influx of Spanish silver into the European economy, from which has been stolen from mountains in South America. So there's all these different factors. And to cut a long story short, ices go through the roof. Right. And they don't really know how to explain this, other than somebody is trying to make a profit at the community's expense. So there is outrage at this. Mm -hmm. So we need to put it in that context. Right away, they're suspicious of people who are trying to take a profit. But of course, it's also a necessary evil. It's accepted. We do have certain areas where we can see that it wasn't just a case of them stomping out cake baxters selling cakes for profit. We do have plenty of examples of that happening. In uh, Edinburgh or Aberdeen, we can point to certain years, 1507, 1557, where they actually cast the cake Baxters out of the bread market. Right. They're not allowed to be there. And if you're not selling in the market, you're not allowed to sell unless, of course, you're a Burgess, which they weren't. Yeah. So we do have examples of them stamping down on this. But what we don't have examples of is what's happening in between 1507 and 1557. We can see in 1589 that there are plenty of cake Baxters in Edinburgh. So clearly something happened to allow them back in. Mm. My point here is that we need to read between the lines. It wasn't always a case of prescription. It wasn't always a case of stamping down on them. Now, some places we actually see that they are embraced. Inverness, for example, uh -huh. they regularly, semi-regularly, issue licenses to cake Baxters. Oh, okay. So what they're doing is they're trying to control it rather than stop it. And it's interesting because the the people tend to be uh, they tend to be poorer women, not exclusively, but they tend to be women and they tend to be poorer. Um, one woman was named Crippled Sophia, and that's quite interesting because uh, right away it's it's a very evocative mm. moniker. We can see, we can get some uh, insight into this, her situation. So the way she made ends meet was by obtaining one of these licenses 
and selling humble oat cakes to her poor neighbors. Mm, making her a valid member of the community, despite the fact she's got a disability. I mean, it's a, it's a good, it can, it can only be a good thing, really, at least from our modern view anyway. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's nothing to indicate that the uh, the town council of Inverness looked down on her. But instead, they were issuing a license because they saw the utility in what she had to offer for the market. That said, if you go to larger markets, Dundee, Aberdeen, Edinburgh, then it is a slightly more complex issue because they are trying to balance out access to this raw material. They're trying to balance out the privileges of the corporate bodies. So complexities, got to embrace them. <laughs> so we better wrap up. I just thought I'd ask, whereabouts can people see any of the work that you've done? If they want to check it out, I'm sure they will want to check it out. Thank you very much for asking. So the uh, the, the latest article on the Cake Baxters uh, was just published in the May-June issue of History Scotland, which is a, a popular magazine. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, freely available online and at, uh, at excellent news agents everywhere. Good. On top of that, this actually was meant to be some of the, the bits which didn't get published in a wider study of marginalized work. Mm. And that is coming out in a collection of essays. It's called Working on the Margins, Freeman, Unfreeman, and Stollingers in Early Modern Scotland. And that's going to be published in a book called Life at the Margins in Early Modern Scotland, uh, which is edited by Alan Kennedy of the University of Dundee. Excellent. When's that due? Uh, that's due out in September, I believe. September. So okay. yeah, it's almost uh, almost ready for press. Yes. So. Yeah, it's not long till September, is it? Can't believe it's June already. It's craziness. I mean, all I can say really is thank you very much for sparing the time to come and talk to us. It's been a great conversation. It's been very interesting. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a, it's been a, a wonderful opportunity to be able to talk about some really some really interesting things I'm passionate about. So, thank you. Thank you very much, Aaron. I have left links to both the magazine and the upcoming book that he mentioned in the show notes, as well as Aaron's Twitter handle, if you want to follow him on social media. And there are links to loads of other things that we mentioned, a recipe for seed cake and peas bread, a link to the Hodmadod's website, if you want to try and get hold of your own peas meal, and the video Aaron mentioned of Josh Townsend making bread in a beehive oven. Remember to send any questions, comments, or queries to me via email or any of my social media accounts. Let's Talk Easter Eggs 2 are attached to this episode. The first is a discussion about technology and why we shouldn't think of it in the past as something primitive. The other is a really interesting section about a whole extra cohort in society at this time period that Aaron has focused on, and that is pastry women who baked more upmarket goods, like seed cakes. We also talk about the importance of baked goods coming in from the countryside to be sold. Remember, to become a subscriber, or to make a donation to the running of the podcast and blogs, visit britishfoodhistory.com and click on the support the blog and podcast tabs. Also, I've written a few blog posts since the last episode proper, one on wigs, a sadly now ignored sort of caraway scone, a post on Elizabeth Raffold's flummery showpieces, that one's just for subscribers, a recipe for the classic English melted butter sauce, a post about the cured meat recipes in English food by Jane Grigson, because I recently cooked all of them, and I always write a little review when I've cooked all of the recipes from a chapter in that book, 
and that's on my other blog, Neil Cooks Grigson. Uh, most recently, I've written a post about the Yorkshire famine food, dock pudding, and there's a recipe on there too. So don't forget to check out those. Okay, a few more things to mention for anybody who's interested. I appeared on two podcasts recently talking about Elizabeth Raffold. They are The Well-Seasoned Librarian and Talk Radio Europe. I talk about other things on those podcasts. So um, check those out. They were good fun to record. And yes, I've got an article published in Country Life called Move Over Mrs. Beaton about Elizabeth, of course. And it can be read on my media page. So if you go to the website, click on the media tab, just scroll down to the 2023 section, which is at the time of speaking at the top of the page, you'll find it. In fact, you'll find links to all of the things I've done in the media. It goes all the way back to the beginning if you keep on scrolling. Now, I mentioned uh, a Zoom talk. Have a look at my YouTube channel. I've set it up and there's not really been anything on there until I put this one video on. But you can go on there and watch it if you have missed my other talks. There was a great opportunity at the end to chat with everyone afterwards, which was really good fun. And because of that, I'm thinking I might do more Zoom talks in the future. I'm going to put my thinking cap on about that. I need to pull my finger out really and put the other few videos I've made in the past onto the channel. I'm going to try and do that in the next week or two. If you've got any ideas for things I could film and add to it, I'd be very happy to hear any suggestions. I hope you liked the Tribe special I made with Sam Bilton, which I think came out about a month ago. If you did listen to it, I mean, sorry, spoilers for anybody who didn't, but where on earth did I go wrong making Tripe? If you've got any information, please let me know. And a new book has been written. So there's, there was a rather larger gap between seasons than I had originally planned because I've signed another book contract, number three. It's about baking. I don't know what it's going to be called yet, but I will keep you updated. I've got the rest of the year to write it. And I think that's us all up to speed with the stuff that I'm doing at the minute. I probably left something out. I usually do. Anyway, off I go. Have a fantastic week. I shall be back soon with a brand new episode of the British Food History Podcast. Cheerio.